0: And my son would get up off the table and he'd walk around the room and he'd be shouting something like my daughter would talk and he'd interrupt and it would just kind of drive me bonkers. And so I went online, try to say, well, maybe my son has some attention deficit disorder. And when you go on to Dr. Google, sometimes you'd be surprised at what you read. And so I read that my ADHD is genetic or highly genetic. And at that point, I realized that all those issues came from me, that I experienced all the same things that they talked about in the ADHD diagnosis. And then when you really look at it from an adult perspective, entrepreneurs, I think, are like three times more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD or ADD than the normal population. And in learning that was really a big wave of relief and self-healing. Because if anybody that's listening has any type of neurodiversity, which pretty much we all have something, right? But for those that have suffered with ADHD, then you'll know that there's a lot of self-blame that you put on yourself. There's a lot of hurt and shame that comes from feeling like you're not doing stuff on time, you're taking on too many things, you let the balls drop, you're not good enough. And there's a whole self-shame
1: cycle. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-host, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su with me.
2: Hey, guys. hey, Good to be here.
1: Today, we are joined by our friend, Darren Kwan. Darren is a serial entrepreneur and investor. Darren co-founded Many's.com in 1999, which failed during the dot-com bubble bust in 2001. However, from the assets of Many.com, He co-founded and bootstrap Data Essential, which has become the global leader in data analytics and research for the food service industry with clients like Nestle, Kraft Foods, Coca-Cola, DoorDash, and McDonald's. Data Essential sold a majority stake to Spectrum Equity, a growth private equity firm, in 2019 for $125 million. Darren also co-founded Collective Solution, a global call center business, in 2002. Collective Solution has over 3,000 employees and provides customer service and back office operations to leading e-commerce and media companies like Amazon, Minted.com, Fashion Nova, and Triller from its call centers in Philippines, Honduras, and Jamaica. Darren is also the founder and CEO of the new startup, Hoopla.com, an event discovery and booking app based on short-form video. Welcome, Darren. Thanks, guys. So one of the things that I admire most about you, at least from like an outsider looking in, is your ability to build communities. Can you tell us a little bit about Breakfast of Champions? Sure. Yeah,
0: Breakfast at Champions is a community where professionals come together to have vulnerable and authentic conversations with the underlying ethos of being helpful. And let me tell you the evolution of Breakfast at Champions really was many years ago, I wanted to get people together to network and let's get people to do business deals and share what's going on. And it was really kind of a transactional intention at the beginning. And I had a great experience in that. Keith Ferrazzi, who was a New York Times bestselling author, is a Fortune 50 executive coach. He wrote Who's Got Your Back? Never Eat Alone. I had known him since my college days. We kept in touch over the many years. And when I sold a majority of Data Central, I stepped away as the CEO of the call center business. I had a new kid, and I was looking at new business opportunities. Keith paused me and said, Darren, instead of just trying to optimize for what you want to do next in your life, why do not you let to optimize the people you want to be around? And who do you want to learn from? Who do you want to be inspired by? So optimizing around people was his real insight. And Keith is a master at this. He really knows that when you're dealing with people that you need to lead with vulnerability because when you're vulnerable, then you build trust in each other. And so while I was doing Breakfast of Champions, Keith and I restarted this unicorn co-elevation series of talks and dinners that he did many years before that. And in this case, we were getting billionaires, so founders of billion-dollar companies or billionaires together, to be vulnerable and to talk about the common issues that we all had. And... So that experience was really eye-opening. You know, it doesn't matter of how many zeros you have behind your net worth, we all have the same kind of issues personally within our businesses. In fact, this is back in 2001. So even some of the dinners we had had like $30 billion in market cap just at that table, right? But we were all just kind of wallowing in our same issues of our struggles. We were also inspired by the same things in terms of the excitements that we had in our life. So I really wanted to take that sense of depth and bring it to breakfast of champions. And every month I host the breakfast in Los Angeles on the first Friday of the month. And I select different topics where people can talk about aspects of their life, which is usually a two-sided part, which is one side is really talking about the areas in which you're struggling in your life, personally, professionally, often talk really about spiritually, emotionally but then what are the other areas that really get you excited or the positive parts, the growthful parts? And I think with those two sides of the coin in bring people together to talk about those aspects of their life, it opens up a whole new depth of connections amongst people. I think we're all familiar with that brand, Anti-Social, Social Social Club. I like to think of Breakfast of Champions as that anti-networking networking. networking.
1: (laughs) So the reason why I ended up reaching out to you was because I saw a video of Breakfast of Champions and it was the theme was failure. And I saw a picture of the questions that you had for that group to kind of talk about. And that felt so authentic and real to me that I just wanted to reach out to you. And then you graciously invited me to the next one, which is Don't Be Fucking Boring. And I felt like you built like this amazing community, everyone that is there so generous. and open and interesting. They've accomplished a lot in life or are trying to accomplish a lot in their life. You've done such a good job of building this community and facilitating the conversation so that everyone gets a lot out of it. I remember one of the guys that led my table, he drove like an hour and a half or two hours just to come from the OC. So you built something amazing and I want to come every month. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginnings and how you started it and how you got to where it is today?
0: Yeah, Well, as I mentioned before, it was just getting a few people together to talk about business. And actually, during the pandemic, I did breakfast virtually. You can do it virtually. And at that time, it was really about, hey, what's going on in the world and how can we help each other from different perspectives of finance or what are the medical folks talking about? But as I talked to you about bringing in this vulnerability and a thematic approach, there's a couple of different things that I experimented over many months to create the format that Will, that you saw and thank you, that you really enjoyed. So these are things that anybody can do. And I really actually encourage everybody to create their own community. I know, Will, you've created a great community of friends. And there are, like I said, people that have their networks, but they always say like, how do we make it deeper and more intentional? And so here are a few things that I did. One was I took a bigger group of people. Uh, I think when you were at breakfast, we had maybe 40 people, but you take a bigger group and then everybody breaks into a table of six. And that magic six number kind of happened when I was coming out of pandemic. I got people together for breakfast. All they had were these six top tables up at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. Well, what I found was that was the perfect number to be able to facilitate a conversation where everybody can be present, everybody can contribute, and everybody has time in their busy day in that busy, short college program to be able to discuss and share. So we do that in a big breakfast. I normally say, oh, the first half hour is kind of just mix and mingle where it's just like any other networking event. But then that magic starts when everybody breaks into these tables of six. Now, the second thing is when you have a table of six, you're going to need a leader, just like each of you are leading a podcast discussion. You need somebody to help kind of make sure that the energy is right, make sure that the conversation is flowing, and most importantly, making sure that you get to the right depth of the conversation. We want this Experience to be one that people, like you said, will remember. And it doesn't make it memorable if you're just kind of saying the very surfacey types of things, like everything's great and I can't wait to go to the beach. We want people to go deeper into, like I said, the topics as it relates to themselves spiritually, physically, emotionally. So that goes to the next part of the program is really the topics and what we talk about. And so I put together what I call community questions that help really challenge people to go deeper, whatever the topic is. So like you mentioned, being boring or not being fucking boring, isn't it just about, oh, hey, let's go do exciting things or go bungee jumping. Not being boring is really how you look at yourself in the depth of your being and realizing that you are the most interesting person you're ever going to meet. So you better damn well take the time and intention to discover yourself. But in the conversation, when everybody's opening up about how they look at themselves, where they see that they're boring or where they see they need to go deeper in, what you find is the leader or moderator of that table, when they go first, like Keith says, if you lead with vulnerability and you set the tone, then everybody else will also open up and continue in that vein. So that's really important. One of the other aspects of the format that we didn't quite experience, but we did a little bit, is something that's shared. So we have 40 people, broken tables of six, people are talking for maybe an hour and a half together. But usually at the end, I want to bring everybody together and have somebody from the table share kind of what they took away from that experience. And it's usually a new person. I would have called on you, Will, had we done that part. What we did instead for that not being fucking boring, we had the spinning wheel of the spice of life wheel. And we gave everybody an experiential chance to experience something new and different, whether on the big spinning wheel, they landed on Carolina Reaper hot sauce, durian, gold leaf, Hexo cognac, or a lottery ticket or a money gun, you know, something just kind of fun. But the point is, it's a shared experience. And so that's what I want everybody to go away with is that we're all, sharing different parts of our life, but we're all having a shared experience. And then I would say the last part is any community today, we have tons of apps and ways of communicating. I have a WhatsApp group, so I encourage people to join that WhatsApp group. And this is the underlying being a helpful ethos is that if you have a need or need or lead, right, that we want people to share within the group and the community agreement in the group is that people need to respond within 48 hours.
1: So this is your 64th Breakfast of Champions. You do it yeah. once every month. Yes. It's in a beautiful restaurant in Beverly Hills. I know, walked in, I was like, no way this is the place, right? I was just blown away. I actually, even my wife, we were in, actually in Beverly Hills a couple of weeks later. She was going to fertility stuff. And then I was like, we got to walk to where Darren had this breakfast because it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> the breakfast, we charged me was $30. And so there's like no way you're making money on these breakfasts, Champions. And so what keeps you going every month? What keeps you continually putting the time to build these communities out? It comes
0: from a desire to connect people.
1: I hope everybody
0: really takes the time in their life to try to understand what their big why is. And I spent the time thinking about my big why. My big why is connecting people and creating magical moments. And I found this out, I'm 51, so much later in life. That, you know, we have all these distractions and we have monetary goals or physical goals of wanting to get a particular car or house or marry the attractive wife or all those things. But sometimes we don't really think about what truly brings joy to ourselves internally and what really aligns well with who we are. And are you familiar with the Japanese term ikigai, right? So ikigai is about doing something that you love, doing something you're good at, doing something the world needs more of, and doing something that you can make money off. And so I think the latter part you're saying is, yeah, I don't really make money off of Breakfast of Champions. I'm not running it as a for-profit club or network. But again, it doesn't mean that all the other positive physical benefits have accrued to me. They absolutely have social capital, deal flow, other connections. They all come from BOC. And what's great is when I hear from other people that said, oh, hey, Darren, I just want to thank you because I just got a lead for this fundraise deal, or I'm looking to do this real estate deal and I need to find somebody that knows about data centers and who do you know and I can connect the dots because of the BOC network. That brings me a lot of joy. I don't expect to have a remuneration, but I know that there's going to be positive, whatever, karma credits going around for a lot of people that are part of it. So that's going to bite
3: you. So I have a question, Darren. You mentioned finding your why. So I'm curious, how did that come to you? And is it something that you feel like has always been innate to you in terms of perhaps empathy or caring about others or searching for deeper meaning? Or was there something turning point perhaps that happened either in your life or career that made you realize this? Great question.
0: I think that most people you're going to do things more aligned to who you are. I think it takes a little longer arc in life for you to be more authentic to you, who you are, because I think as we grow up, right, we're just so much influenced by what our parents tell us to do or want us to do, where our culture, being Asian, not Asian, whatever it is, what schools you go to, like, so all those things impact kind of directionally who you think you should be. And then you grow up, when you get beaten up by life, you have some success, you have some failures. And I wouldn't say that it's really driven by obviously certain goals in terms of age or money. We're like, okay, now I can think about truly who I am and what my big why is. So I do think it's something that anybody can do at any time. But I've just found for me, like when I had some space after selling a company, you really go through that identity crisis of, okay, so now who am I? What do I do when I wake up? And of course, I encourage everyone to pursue meditation, some type of higher awareness or higher consciousness of who they are. So again, whether that's through meditation, yoga, religion, reading, to give yourself that space to really ask those questions. And so for me, it really did line up, right? When I say this, The phrase, my big why is connecting people and creating magical moments. Yeah, it almost sounds like a chat GBT phrase that comes out, right? Like make it shorter, make it tighter. But that really took me 51 years, right? Of trying to distill down or connect all the dots, right? Steve Jobs talks about, in this famous Stanford graduation speech, you can only connect the dots looking backwards in your life. So when I connect my dots, oh, I've always been interested in student government and leading organizations. I was very active in FS in my early years, active in my fraternity, active in YPO. These are all like personal networks and organizations, and they all have an aspect of the same ethos of being vulnerable, being authentic in some ways and being helpful to each other. And now I just added the magical moments part because I realized that's really, I think what being human is all about is having experiences with each other, experiencing joy, experiencing new things. So I added that, why? Because I want to do more of that in my life. And I now want the things that I do do are more focused towards that. And it's not just about, oh, I'm trying to make money or return on investment. It's really maximizing magic with the people that
3: I want to be around. Right. So I'm glad you brought up YPO and FF, because as you mentioned, you were parts of these organizations. And so I imagine that, like you said, they're trying to do some perhaps similar things. But what inspired you to start of Champions? Did you feel like you were not getting this from, say, YPO or FF? And is that what kind of got you to start your own community?
0: I think that Let's use FF as an example for people who don't know. It's Chinese fraternal organization. And so we experience a lot of closeness. There's a lot of cultural bonds, social bonds. But as we discussed pre-recording, there's still a lot of depth that's not explored. And that's also a pure function of cultural limitations, right? Let's say Asians, Chinese, we're not always known to be the most, let's say, open about our failures, Our misgivings. There's a very Confucian type of philosophy about filial piety and respect to elders. So, for sure, Breakfast of Champions is not in the mold of FF, but really trying to go deeper within who we are. And YPO, I've been in entrepreneurs' organization, young presidents' organization, I've been in forums. Forums are, in a sense, a similar construct where you take a big group of people and you break them down to groups of six or 10 that meet every month, just those groups in these forums, and you have very intimate conversations. But YPO is an artificial construct. You, as a business person, have to have a certain title, a CEO, chairman, founder. Your business has to do a certain amount of revenue. It's up to 20 million revenue these days. And for me, That's a very exclusive, small set of people that can participate in that experience. And so I want Breakfast of Champions to be something that's more open, experience to anybody. And that's why it's still professionals, but you don't have to be the founder CEO of the business because you're still a person that has a lot to contribute to the rest of the group.
3: So what are the requirements? If, say, I wanted to go to Breakfast of Champions, is there an application or how would I go about doing that?
0: So there is no application. I purposely kept it open. So it's really more of a word of mouth, somebody that introduces you to Breakfast of Champions because they had a great experience. And I kind of feel like that's really the truest, best way right now for us to continue to grow and get more people involved. Because on the one hand, everybody's going to be pretty much qualified. Again, these are professionals in some capacity. And so you can artificially say you have to have this type of job title, this type of job, or this type of net worth or income. But that tells me nothing about the type of person that you are. You're really going to be somebody that contributes and opens up. On the other hand, we make it open. It's also self-selecting. Like Will said, you had a really great experience. I can tell you you're somebody that's open and depthful and willing to be vulnerable. And so you're going to come back. You're going to attract more of those people and that will make the community better. You don't want, if somebody just purely transactional there for what's the latest deal, then this is not going to be the right group or community for you. But the other thing I would say and challenge anybody listening to this is if you are interested in creating a breakfast of champions, wherever you are, come talk to me. We'll share my details some other way. But I really encourage, and I'm hoping and happy to share the formats that I've worked through to get other people to do this. And in fact, I've talked to other people, VCs and founders in New York, for example, where you guys are, to say, hey, if you want to start a Breakfast of Champions, then I will help you to do that because I think it'll be a really rewarding experience for you and you can really create a community that's different and differentiated from a lot of the other professional networks that are out there.
2: It's great seeing you kind of really grow up, your kind of big why that you figured out, right? Even offering to set up more breakfast with champions. Uh, what other ways are you kind of trying to follow your why? And how do you kind of remind yourself to stay towards that vision?
0: One of the ways that I'm trying to articulate my why is in my latest start, Hoopla. So Hoopla is a event discovery and booking app in video. So I describe it as TikTok meets Eventbrite where I really saw that when it comes to marketing and showcasing events, whether they're music, fitness events, or community events, everybody does it in a static picture. And you don't really get a sense of the vibe or the authenticity of what that event is about. And I wanted people to be able to connect more easily to those experiences, to create those magical moments. Before ChatGBT launched, and I was thinking about my big why, a lot of that Really centered around about how is AI going to disrupt humanity? How is AI going to take jobs away from people? And the reality is it's going to affect a lot of people. It's going to destroy a lot of jobs. I'm in the call center business. We know that customer service and customer care will definitely be impacted by the use of, you know, intelligent bots to help people resolve issues. But ultimately the conclusion is, AI cannot disrupt what makes us truly human, which is our ability to connect with one another. And so by me leaning into a business like Koopla is really me leaning into that big why: is maintaining the ability to connect with real people, the ability to give people opportunity to find joy and delight through experiences and in-person experiences. And it's also shape the way that now I'm looking at certain investments. Now I've made a lot of investments, angel investments in my life in the past. Sometimes you do it because it seems like, oh, it's a great business. Sometimes you do it for strategic purposes from a social capital perspective. But now I'm looking at things that are somewhat entertainment based. If I have to put the pieces together, Breakfast of Champions, Hoopla and entertainment type businesses all lead to that same kind of direction.
2: I love that. And so as a PM, I have to ask, how are you getting folks to share the vibe at their events? Have you found some interesting features or prompts to help folks kind of really be able to share the vibe of their event?
0: Yeah, I think that people are doing better, obviously, in a short form video. It's still a learning curve for some people when it comes to a like host saying, OK, I'm used to putting together a thumbnail picture of my event. But now we're challenging people to say, hey, can you do a video? And so some people are really jumping on it, obviously, if they're active on TikTok or reels, they know how to do that. And some other people were helping them create those little scissor reels. But I don't think it takes a whole lot. Like if you think about most music events are marketed via a static image. Where you have a link to Spotify, but it's not even really embedded in the marketing itself. So just that alone, if you're showcasing somebody that's singing for their concert and you're, you're seeing them and you're hearing the music, I mean, to me, that's just a great benefit.
1: So we started at the end, but I wanted to go back to the beginning and help connect the dots, as you mentioned before. I think you started your career in finance in Hong Kong, right? How did you end up there?
0: Yeah, actually, I started in New York. So New York and Hong Kong, I started in asset management. I did institutional asset management sales. It's a little different. I was selling to institutional corporate and public pension funds. And then in Hong Kong, I went on the um, analyst side and helped do some work for portfolios. And for me, this is just me, I felt like I didn't want my life measured in basis points. Because when you're in the fund world, whether it's asset management, VC, PE, ultimately you're going to be measured in basis points. Are you outperforming or underperforming your benchmark of your peers? And to me, I really wanted to create something and build something. And so I left Hong Kong in 1998 really as a function of the Asia financial crisis. But once again, when we look at our lives, those events that seem like they're calamities at the time, they turn out to be blessings in disguise, right? So lost my job in the Asia financial crisis, came back home to LA, had to live with my mom for a bit, which was terrible. But then we connected with a childhood friend of mine that I knew since I was 10 years old. And we co-founded Menus.com. And once again, it's not something I would have planned out of school to say, hey, I'm going to start a foodrelated.com. But hey, that what was hot in the late 90s was being able to create new businesses. Even though I will say this, back in 1999, it still cost a million dollars to build a website. It's not like today where it's so turnkey where you have AI, which you can put in a product and a phrase and it builds a website for you. So there was still a lot of lift, a lot of work to build a business, even though we were also in our early 20s to do this or mid 20s. But I will say the next part of my life, that's the next question is we often do things that had we known how hard they were at the beginning. We probably wouldn't have done it, right? So maybe starting a podcast seemed really cool takes a lot of work, right? But over time, then you figure out, you know, how to make it easy and how to use the scale, the business, how to make it easier to do it. But I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that they just want to create or they just want to solve problems that they see. Like at the time, this was pre-Yelp. We wanted to find food to eat, places to go to if you had a certain craving. And we created menus.com because we built the largest database of restaurant menus in the country. So you could search
1: and find a place that served shrimp risotto, if that's what you wanted. And then the dot-com crash happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's funny because the chairman of our company at the time, Mohan, had just taken stamps.com public. So he had investment bankers all ready to go for us. But it was kind of like, uh, how much money do you want to make there? And like, we're just going to line it up and you just cash that check. Like, it's going to be great. And then boom, the dot-com bubble burst, right? And our pivot even though back then, it was really just, how do we pay rent and eat food? Solving that question and that problem was more immediate than what was the ingenious twist and turn. But we did have, again, a lucky break. And this is what I try to do now With I deal with other entrepreneurs. Our investors allowed us to buy our assets back for $75,000. So that was their domain name and the database of menus that we had built. So we had basically aggregated and keyed in over 50,000 unique menus in the country. And so what we did, in particular, my partner Jack created a program by which we could query all that data. So we got one of those yellow coding books for dummies, figured out how to code, and created a program so that we could look at menu incidence and frequency of keywords. So it's like, well, what do you do with that? Well, with that information, I was able to go to craft. And say, hey, Kraft, do you want to know what the most popular cheese on sandwiches are? Do you want to know how that varies by region? And what the additive price of that slice of cheese would be? Like, Oh, yeah, dude, we love that information. How do we get that? That one research study I got paid $300 for. So I was like, damn, we got to sell a lot of cheese reports if we're going to make any money. But really what we created and started to iterate around was a software, a SaaS program. Really, before big data, before SaaS was the household words that they are now in the investment community, and we had a vertical SaaS platform called Mini Trends. That was our legacy program, and we allowed food manufacturers of all types and sizes to really try to understand how food flavors and ingredients trend on menus across different restaurant segment types, geographies, so they can be ahead of the game. So they know, like, okay, if I use this example all the time, we see salted caramel as a dessert flavor everywhere now, right? But if you think back 12, 15 years ago, salted caramel came out of high-end white tablecloth restaurants, probably in San Francisco or New York, as a dessert item. But only because then... When, a, let's say, a top chef or a top white table culture restaurant does it, then do other chefs pick it up and does that progress down the literal food chain? And because the food channel became so prevalent and the Internet became so prevalent and food bloggers and Yelp, it just kind of sped up this notion of food adoption and flavor adoption. And so now we're so used to eating cultural foods, whether they're from Asia, obviously today we see so many of those different flavors proliferating in all different types of
1: mainstream restaurants.
0: And so that's really what Data Central, which menus.com turned into, has been the leader in globally.
1: So one of the things that really stood out to me, and the reason why I say this is because I'm in eight years right now in my company. And when I started it, I thought it was going to be a couple of years and I'm going to sell it. And he's talking about starting something. If he didn't, if he knew how hard it was, you wouldn't have started it, right? And so you built this company over 20 years. And one of the things that really stand out to me is how much resilience and patience that really takes, especially as like an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. Can you just talk a little bit about that 20-year journey?
0: I think that's one of the problems that our society faces. When we look at social media, everything is immediate gratification. When we look at startups and you look at the news, TechCrunch or Crunchbase. everybody seems like they've gotten a round of funding and they're growing like weeds and you're just going to get rich quick. And that's not the case, right? I don't know all the stats. The majority of the businesses go to business in five years. And that's all businesses, like traditional businesses. Businesses in tech, where they're Often requires a lot of investment to just build a product or get data has even more risk, right? Cause you may not be turning profit or cash flow positive immediately. So it really does come down to, like you said, resilient mindset of just continuing to iterate and look at the problems. And why aren't you, I guess, getting the customer to return? Or how do you get the customer to be interested? What their real problem is. We were obviously lucky in that when we started Data Essential, we weren't a SaaS product right away. We actually did traditional consulting and research and market research first. So I think that's another thing that people can look at where their business is. The goal is to create a business that, let's say, is 90% recurring revenue business. But it doesn't always happen that way. So our long arc was really servicing and working with the clients first understanding their problems. Who are we selling to? Now we could say, oh, yeah, people at a big food manufacturer or chain restaurant, they're culinary, they're marketing, they're salespeople. They're all using the different tools that we have. But at the beginning, all you're trying to do as a startup founder is find that one champion within that company and solving that one problem that they have. So in our case, if it's trying to find helping that R&D chef giving that man or woman the data of why this food flavor ingredient is going to be important. They know it's a great dish or a great product, but they need to back it up with something. And they need to then have marketing tell the story of why that next restaurant or their client should buy their product and what data supports that. And so we had to do that over and over and over again. So in some ways, why Breakfast of Champions, I do it numerically, kind of like UFC, right? Every UFC goes up, every BOC goes up. Because to me, it is a mental reminder that you're only gonna get better through repetition. And it doesn't happen overnight. I guarantee you BOC 300 is gonna be way different than BOC 64. And just like our version one of our product was way different, you know, whatever we're shipping today.
1: So at what point in that entrepreneurial journey, that 20-year journey, did you start Collective Solution?
0: Pretty immediately. So when we went to the pivot, like I said, of, okay, we're not just putting menus up there as a consumer resource for people to find restaurants, but we wanted people to engage with our data. We needed to continually aggregate data. We needed to continue to collect menus, have people enter that into a database. We needed people to call restaurants. In fact, I joke that in the early days, we used to go to Craigslist and hire in-between-job actors, right? Because they had good voices on the phone, but they were just so darn flaky, like they just never show up. They had auditions. So we said, hey, we need a call center. To just continually do this. So, my partner, Human, and I connected with our other partners that were in the telecom business. And this is back when internet telephony really wasn't as cheap as it is today. You needed point to point big Avaya switches that costed a half a million dollars a pop to connect calls between the U.S. and Philippines. And so we went out to the Philippines and just started with 20 people. And again, for a long time, we were just solving the problem of one client, and that was Parcells Data Center. How do we continue to make calls and manage a team of people remotely? And so we didn't have this aspiration that like, okay, we're just going to pop up a huge uh, business process outsourcing or BPO call center business and really scale it. None of us had ever worked in a call center or a BPO. So 21 years later, we're in the process of actually selling the business. But now at a scale where we have gotten all the right people that know the business, we have a lot of happy clients and customers, and again, just kind of iterated on that process and success from 20 people to over 3,000 people now.
1: Just real quick, we actually, when we started our company, we did the same thing. So, we're a SaaS company for funeral homes right now. But when we started, it was marketplace. It was to find, like search a zip code and find prices in your location. So, we actually hired a team of Philippines to call and pretend customers to get collectible prices to put it on the internet as well. You're actually, with both these businesses, you're ahead of your time, whether it's building like vertical SaaS. Now, everybody's using VSAs or everyone's outsourcing the Philippines because the Philippines have the best workers in terms of both reliability, super friendly and nice. And they want your approval, right? And so they do such a good job, well-educated as well. And so, like I just want to say, ahead of your time for both your businesses.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. Hoping Hoopla is feeling a little ahead of its time too. So sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's bad. We <laughs> yeah. it have the market catch up to you. But, you know, what we are doing is businesses are never static. Like I said, AI is coming into the whole business process, outsourcing, customer service world. So we have to adapt. That's part of the reason why we're looking at doing this transaction that will merge us with another player that's developing AI tools to help make that either the agent education training better, and then ultimately the customer service aspect better so that we can serve all sorts of businesses and their clients And in the data world for Data Central, what's interesting is food is still such a qualitative product, right? It's your flavor and the taste and the smell and the look, but yet data is still so important. And really that's what AI is kind of teaching all of us is that you can take the data of words, but you can transform it into something beautiful like lyrics and poetry that computers can really optimize so ultimately, I do think that to be successful in any of these businesses, so like you found out, Will, yeah. like you need to have the ability to continue to collect data, whether it is somebody calling and getting it, scraping it. But then you're also going to need better ways of analyzing it quicker, better, in different ways. So then as a business person, you have new insights by which you can create new products, pivot messaging, or being able to address customer needs in a more timely.
1: I wanted to ask you more about your, your upbringing, where a lot of this entrepreneurial and building personality came from. So I know you're a fourth generation Chinese, you grew up in LA. Can you talk a little bit more about your childhood?
0: So as a fourth generation Chinese American, both sides of my family came in the late 1800s to California. So my dad's side came to San Diego to pursue import-export. And then my mom's side came to farm asparagus in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. So I would say very much the entrepreneurial kind of genes were there. Obviously, the Chinese diaspora is all around the world because of people wanting to improve their lives through entrepreneurship and finding business opportunities. So I think I grew up around that. I grew up around the notion of taking risks. I grew up around failure. My grandfather became successful. He was a self-made man. He also ended up giving pretty much all of his net worth to USC, which brought him great joy because he realized without education, he would not have been able to advance very far into society. But his business eventually failed. My dad ended up running it. It was not his my dad's passion. And in nineteen eighties there was a recession and we ended up closing down. My mom ended up starting her own business, a basket business, doing design of baskets, actually out of the Philippines. So I guess that was kind of a fun family fact that she was there way before I was there. I'm doing business. That eventually failed. But I think through it all, then you know the message was pretty loud and clear. Like you either do what you need to do to survive and take care of your families, or you do what you see is needed in the marketplace and you try your best. And even though that my family's members have had failures, it doesn't take away from who they are, all their experiences. In fact, my father has been a huge inspiration because his business, when he closed it, he was 50. You Look at myself at 50, and I'm struggling with my startup Pupila. It's not an easy path, but it reminds me that at 50, he had to restart his career and learning a lot of new things and putting in all the grit and resilience just trying to get to that next day, to get to the next milestone. And so I hope that my kids will also see that. And what's kind of funny is because I'm 51 and I have a 10, 8, and 3-year-old, in a sense, they don't know anything about my past. Now. They don't know my struggles of starting two companies two decades ago and selling one and about to sell another. They, they just see dad now <laughs> as he does events every now and then and Maybe I'm not certain successful in their eyes, but that's okay. It's kind of nice to, you know, when they say uh, live in child's eyes. I guess it means that I have to kind of bring my game in their perspective every day, and just being out there and trying and doing my best to grow business.
2: Are you trying to role model anything specific to them? Because I'm sure they're watching you, right? And oh yeah, and your third one. So how does that add to your motivation? And what are you trying to role model?
0: I think the first and foremost. For entrepreneurs, is just doing it, right? That if you have a good idea, as we know, ideas are nothing. It's all about execution. So the fun thing about what I'm doing with Hoopla is that, one, it's in video. And as we know, kids these days are so much easier to deal with new technology. I mean, they picked it up, the product, and play around with it and making short videos. That came really natural to them. And just seeing them pretending to sell a product, a make-believe product on the early versions of Hoopla was kind of fun. The other thing is, because we do events, I bring my kids to them. So they get to see dad out in the field or interacting with other people doing a health and wellness events, So it's fun to them. And they see me going out at night Dad's gotta work an event. I've gotta check people into this indie music concert. And I kinda of laugh. Like I'm fifty. I think I've done okay in my life, but I'm out there scanning tickets for twenty year olds going to see some indie rock concert. And they get a kick out of it. But you know what? At the end of the day, I'm not being fucking boring and it's fun. So I think they see that dad's taking risks and doing things, so that's the best.
2: That's super inspiring. Have you had a most favorite event so far that you've been like, wow, I didn't know that this was going on and just feeling lucky that it's like part of the job you're getting to explore and really getting to know those folks and their business?
0: Well, I think health and wellness is great because there's a lot of people that are just very passionate about mind, body, wellness. But one thing that's been really fun is because the name is Hoopla, which about excitement, I would bring hula hoops out to some of these events. And let me tell you, people love hula hooping. You just put the hula hoops out there and people walk by and before you know it, they're picking it up and they're twisting and turning and they're laughing and having a great time. And it makes older people feel like kids. And to me, that's a magical moment. I would never have guessed that would happen. And that just makes me really happy. So if you haven't hula
1: hooped out there, it's good fun. It's good exercise. Now I can do it for like a half hour. Before this interview, you mentioned that one of your kids was diagnosed with ADHD. Could you kind of go over that experience?
0: Yes. So I was noticing at my family, we would do a gratitude exercise at dinner. And we just go around and say, what are you thankful for? And that exercise, which should take just no more than a few minutes, would take 15 minutes. And my son would get up off the table and he'd walk around the room and he'd be shouting something. Like My daughter would talk and he'd interrupt. And it would just kind of drive me bonkers. And so I went online, try to say, well, maybe my son has some attention deficit disorder. And when you go on to Dr. Google, sometimes you'd be surprised at what you read. And so I read that my ADHD is genetic or highly genetic. And at that point, I realized that all those issues came from me, that I experienced all the same things that they talked about in the ADHD diagnosis. And then when you really look at it from an adult perspective, entrepreneurs, I think, are like three times more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD or ADD than the normal population. And in learning that was really a big wave of relief and self-healing. Because if anybody that's listening has any type of neurodiversity, which pretty much we all have something, right? But for those that have suffered with ADHD, then you'll know that there's a lot of self-blame that you put on yourself. There's a lot of hurt and shame that comes from feeling like you're not doing stuff on time, you're taking on too many things, you let the balls drop, you're not good enough. And there's a whole self-shame cycle just within that. Now, the positive side is those people with ADHD exhibit hyper focus on the things that they're really interested in. Obviously, when it comes to procrastination, you can write a 20-page paper the night before it's due and it still comes out pretty well. But most people don't see the stress that we take on or those type of individuals take on. So yes, on the one hand, I feel my ADHD kind of allowed me to start two businesses simultaneously that became successful. Granted, I had an incredible team and partners and people when it comes to my home life. I often joke, if it wasn't for my wife, who is very type A and maybe slightly OCD, we would be naked, hungry, and dirty. So she covers all the other areas in my life where my mind is just not paying attention to or I let slip. And so you find what works in those partnerships and companions. And so when I look at my son, I want him to, to A, certainly know that the frustrations and anxiety that he has, that he's not alone. And that there are certain, obviously, ways of approaching time management and executive functioning that can improve. But I've also learned just to be a much, 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 much more empathetic father. Because you can give a kid medication, you can say, here's a calendar, this is how you time block. But this really goes for, I guess, any child that is growing up and has difficulties is that they just want to be loved and feel the love of the parent. And so I really found the biggest outcome of learning about my ADHD diagnosis and the that my son has it is that when he's in times of distress, to just give him a hug and tell him he's a good boy and love him and not to overanalyze it and just be with him.
1: Thank you for sharing. One of the things that you talked about in terms of your dad was his philanthropy and giving money to USC. I know that you also do a lot of philanthropy as well. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So it was actually my grandfather who started the philanthropy to USC. Endowed gift was to help overseas Asian students with tuition because again, that was his experience. So that's every year now, there's probably like 15 students both that undergrad and graduate from the USC Marshall School of Business undergraduate programs that receive some tuition assistance. And that has inspired me and my wife and our family. So, for example, at Yale and other schools, STEM is a really important field to study. My wife was a math major at UCLA. She was doing cybersecurity as a senior executive at Bank of America for nearly 20 years. And so what she saw is that in STEM fields in particular, that the number of women participating in the workforce, they drop off precipitously as you get older. And it actually starts very early, like in grade school. So for women listening or men that have sisters or daughters, it's not so cool to become the math robotics girl when you're in middle school and high school. And what happens is that if you're not interested, you tend not to pursue those types of STEM fields in college. And then that means there's a dearth of those professionals in the workforce. There is an example that she often cites was in the first version of Siri that if you said to Siri, I'm having a heart attack, it could tell you kind of prescriptively what, what to do because it's, an off, it's a higher propensity male problem. If you said Siri, I've been raped, they had no response. So in similar ways, diversity of thought is really important to the field of cybersecurity. Because if you're thinking about hackers, nation state hackers, and the way that they're approaching a problem, it's usually a male mindset. And having women, wherever they are in the organization, and now in business, we talk right in the boardroom, right? It helps bring diversity of thought, different ways of looking at problems and solutions. And so our our philanthropy so far has been really to help support like STEM programs in high school or at Yale in the data science program with women, grad students, and
1: faculty.
3: Yeah. So Darren, I'm curious, we talked a bit about your childhood, being a fourth generation Chinese growing up in LA. I'm curious if you, in your experiences, had ever experienced prejudice or feelings of, say, either potentially racism or a glass ceiling. How was that for you growing up? and rising through the ranks, starting your own company?
0: So I grew up in West LA, which is predominantly you know, white. I actually joked that I had a chai mitzvah because I went to so many bar and bar mitzvahs growing up that I could recite the Torah, sing the songs, and I knew the customs. But interestingly enough, that I was able to use those experiences as an advantage, right? Because then I could relate to other people, especially in college or in business, that since I, yeah, I wasn't, necessarily pigeonholed as just being somebody that was in Chinese culture or Asian culture. I think growing up, I had those experiences where people would call me Bruce Lee, like if I was at a summer camp, a wrestling camp. And I actually really had this great full circle in something that I'm looking to do, which is I've since become friends with Dennis Chang, who's the CEO of the Bruce Lee Foundation and Bruce Lee Companies. So he works with Shannon Lee, Bruce's daughter. And one of the initiatives of their foundation is that they want to create experiential camps to help kids not only learn about the martial arts part of Bruce Lee, but also his philosophies, right, which were very progressive and very spiritual. And I joke to the Dennis, I said, for a lot of us that did experience some racism, who were called Bruce, that was really the one person where he was kind of cool. You could put me down and call me Bruce Lee because he was a badass. He was a badass 50 years ago, which was pretty amazing, the impact that he had and still continues to have today. So I think I was lucky that my direct negative experiences around race worse have been somewhat limited. You know, I did experience some in college, around the college town that I was at. And actually, I experienced a little slightly reverse racism when I was in Hong Kong. I was interviewing to get a job at Jardine Fleming. Jardine Fleming, people know, is, is a British investment bank. And around the late 90s, 97, 98, was kind of like the last time that an ABC like myself, but didn't really speak Chinese, could have a shot at working in finance in Hong Kong. And... I had this interview. I thought I did really well. And then he dropped the bomb, which is, well, why should I hire you? Because you can't even speak Chinese. I can get away with it because I'm a silly Guaido. And I left that interview being so pissed off. As I was walking out Pacific Place in the mall... I went to a payphone because is cell phones. So I didn't have a cell phone. I went to a payphone and I called this managing director and I said, I realize what this is going to do to my chances of working for your phone, but I thought that your colonial view was disgusting and I wouldn't want to work for you anyway. So I think that's really the the inspiring part is obviously being Chinese-American, the realizing that, let's say, our other Chinese in Asia I mean, we're just doing great things, and everybody is more empowered to be themselves. And if you're going to have any type of racist attitudes, there's people that'll lap you like that, and I feel sorry for those people.
3: And it actually takes a lot of guts what you did calling the MD. <laughs> I couldn't say the same for uh, a lot of college grads. It's actually very impressive.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, sometimes you just got to stand up, right? I think social media. Is probably helping to empower a lot of people's voices. My mini act of defiance or righteousness, in a sense, was just that. So,
3: in a sense, thank you for letting me share that story. I haven't told in
0: decades. And maybe it maybe will inspire people to yeah, you got
3: to speak out. It's actually kind of fascinating to me because, as a fourth-generation Chinese, you seem to have retained a lot of the interest, respect, and responsibility that you feel to your heritage, right? You were part of the Asian American Students Association in college, and you've done a lot post, you've joined other organizations. So I'm curious, did that come from your parents? Or how did you find that kind of passion and kind of respect for your own heritage?
0: Yeah, it came from my grandfather. So he lived to 100. So I really got to experience him and learn about his life. And growing up, I never threw a ball with my grandfather. I would Sit next to him, and he telling me his stories of his life, all the troubles and trials that he had. But it really had a deep, profound effect on me. And he was very ethnocentric, very proud to be Chinese. And so I got that certainly from him. Is that we as Chinese have a lot to be proud of. He really believed in this next decade of being, you know, a lot of China's growth. So it was really very natural that when I went to college, I didn't really identify myself as in Chinese. But then I found and met a lot of other students That we had those similarities, right? Just, hey, all those little nuances, whether it is about food or customs, you just kind of understand it subconsciously with one another. So actually, as the co-moderator, which was really president of the the Asian Students Association, call it another act of defiance. Maybe it started there was when there was a big movement and trying to get Asian American studies more on the academic docket, right? We had maybe a class, but we thought that it really should have more classes or a major around Asian American studies. And so I was part of that group that spoke out to the administration. Yeah, I do remember calling out to the provost of of Yale and telling them that they need to step up the game, basically, and in a crazy then full circle later when I had the ability to donate money back to Yale, I sat down with the then provost of the university. And he said, Darren, so tell me, what are the areas that you are passionate about and you'd like to express your philanthropy around? And my first thing was Asian American studies. And his response to me was, well... I can't really do that because if I take your money for Asian studies, then I have to consider the Black students and the Latino students, et cetera, et cetera. My heart kind of sunk. It's kind of like, no matter how far you've gone, have we really made any movements. And then subsequently, they called me back, my... My development officer, she said, hey, Darren, because I just want to let you know, we have some discussions about Asian studies. I'm like, yeah, well, the basement of the Asian American Cultural Center needs to be renovated. And I'm like, what? Pardon me, but I'm not fucking putting my name on the basement of the Asian American Cultural Center. And I just laughed. So, I think there's definitely a lot of work that all ethnic groups, but especially Asians, I think, as we know, and not just Chinese, but like all Asians, like we need to do a lot more together to have voice politically and socially. And I think that one of the joys in the sense of being part of the FF fraternity is seeing that there is at least a common vision of like connecting us because we have a common culture together so that we can at least be perceived as a bigger group that has potential for more influence, even though we're not a political organization, but still to have more influence when it comes to business or other social causes.
3: One more question on this topic, given we're talking about the issue of Asian American voices, your kids as now fifth generation Chinese, are you in any way intentionally giving them exposure to Chinese culture? Or are you more hands-off and letting them kind of forge their own path?
0: It makes me really happy to take them to dim sum with
3: their grandparents.
0: I think there's nothing that really speaks to culture as the food does. So as long as they really enjoy great dim sum or great Chinese banquet, I know I'll be in them because it is literally in them. I think that they're not necessarily getting the same stories that I got from their grandparents. I mean, we took them to Taipei and Singapore to start to see some of what Asia is about. But I think the simple things, like when we have our Chinese New Year dinner, that is one thing that I make sure that they go to every year, because I do want them to see that they're part of a bigger group. And that we have these certain shared values. And I think that's a great thing about being part of a community like FF is that they see a commonality of the values and the people, the brothers, the uncles, the aunties, that we all treat each other respectfully.
3: They're all very, very helpful.
0: We actually do go to this West Coast Chinese family camp. I don't know if you guys have heard of this.
3: I heard about this, but yeah, please go ahead.
0: Yeah, so it started, I think, on the East Coast, probably like, almost 15 years ago. Should ask Clifton Shane about it. Uh, But Clifton and others, especially FF brothers and families, brought it to the West Coast. So every year there's like, we get together, there's maybe 10 families from Northern California, 10 from Southern California. And we all come together at a school that we rent out. And it's like, again, one big extended Chinese family. There's lots of funs and there's lots of games, kind of like a big color day competitions. But in particular, the kids do presentations, cultural presentations. So whether it is on aspects of Chinese food, customs. So they are getting that, that taste. And I think what's great thing about kids is they're just happy to relate. With the other kids of a similar age, and I think they're also seeing that they're growing up with the same things, food-wise and customs that they are, and so it, again, it's just very natural, easy fit. And they really enjoy.
3: It. That's great. Actually, I'm curious because I think you said your kids are ten, eight, and three. Yeah, right now. So maybe not the three-year-old, but yeah. the ten-year-old. Your two eldest children spend a significant time, a significant amount of time at home during COVID. So I'm curious, how was that experience for you? And did you see or do you see any potential effects of that that are apparent to you now?
0: I would say the positive part of COVID that other people might have expressed is the fact that we were just there and we were all there together. I think that I don't see that they were necessarily compromised socially emotionally. Because I think that since we've been out of it, they've all been in active and sports activities. I would say that's probably an area where my son is now getting into soccer, right? He's on a club soccer team. My daughter is doing ice skating. Obviously, those activities people couldn't do during the pandemic. Getting together with our grandparents was something that we couldn't do during the pandemic, right? Everybody was afraid of getting their elderly parents sick. You know, God forbid that your kid coughs and then the grandparents get sick. So we're kind of like making up for lost time, I feel, in getting together with family members. But I think that the one area where certainly we encourage our kids is just through expression. Yeah, you could say when you're around each other all the time in COVID, you probably want to talk to each other all the time. But I think that was a particular time for a lot of people where, again, going to the mental and emotional health standpoints, that maybe because... You're always together. You're not always necessarily expressing the way you're feeling at that moment in those times. And that's why Breakfast of Champions online was important because I didn't think the same thing. We didn't necessarily get to express the way we're feeling or concerns all the time together. So I think there's the positive part is those families that really savor and appreciate the time together with the family and how that slowed down their pace of travel. I didn't go anywhere, but in the old days I'd be. You know, I'm playing and missing out a lot of moments that I really got to be there.
2: I have one more on the kid thing. So you were able to spend more time with them during COVID. Did you have any takeaways then for your three-year-old about how you're going to do anything differently? Or is it kind of like you've already you know, given you've already sold two companies and the point in your life that's not a big deal anymore. You kind of have it dialed so you're
0: spending enough time already. Well, I will say this. Any kids that you have are blessings and joy. My experience is having this third kid at 51, he's three. So I have him very late in life with an age gap between the others. has really opened me up to a lot more gratitude in life. And they say that love isn't what you feel towards somebody else. That love is always in you. But sometimes it takes somebody or something to help bring that love out more when we feel it. And I love Ethan and Emma tremendously my first two. But I will say Evan as the third, where I do have this kind of gap of business experience life, he's filled that up more. I've let that love come out more. I can appreciate all the little nuances of a three-year-old or, or a toddler growing up more than I did when I was just trying to struggle with the other two getting up dressed, fed, changed out the door, through the routine, going to work. Still working hard, don't get me wrong, but my appreciation and my heart is so much bigger. So, Can you tell us a little bit about community stacking? One concept like, is community stacking. So I don't know, it's kind of growing back to just communities, breakfast of champions. So yeah, community stacking is not a new concept, but I will say maybe a new phrase. And that is, if you want your business to be successful or even an existing group to be successful, it behooves you to bring in others and opening up whatever you're doing so that those communities can accrete to one another. So the example with Breakfast of Champions is I could very much easily say, hey, this is my ego baby. This is my community. And it's only like you said, how do you get in? Who's in? And I'm choosing you, but not you. But instead, the approach is I want to align myself with other like-minded groups and say, invite your people to come to this. So I created a community partnership program. It's not a pay for play thing, but I want to be able to promote Will in the future, your community of great people. Sovereign, their community of great people. Mission Matters, your community of great people. And then through that, we cross-pollinate. So now I've done a Breakfast of Champions format at uh, Chirag's Mission Matters conference, where we did this for 80 business people, authors, and podcasters. And so now they got a taste of what Breakfast of Champions is all about. And so it's the way of being viral, but in an offline sense. And so really, I encourage people to not put up the ego walls around what they're doing, but really open and stack other communities on top of each other so everybody can benefit.
1: I see a lot of myself in you. And I feel like you're one of the most ideal role models for me, given kind of your interests and what you do and what your ikigai is. And I just basically everything you said today just really resonates with me. And I wanted to say thank you for your vulnerability and thank you for sharing and your generosity. Really appreciate
0: your time. Oh, thank you, Will and me and Andrew. You guys are doing a great service by having people tell their stories. And again, going back, we want to be surrounded by people that inspire us. And inspiration goes both ways. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, wld.show. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you.